0: tethered Little cousins grown big the ones who used to hang off of iron swing sets until the sunset in the next state over Have developed into drunken mothers or fathers pretending to be stable Some playing the role of heavily inked mule Carrying the precious cargo of someone with more worries Some of them mull about in cement cells others in tent cities The free ones try to out-yell each other with sass, bragging of upper-end mediocrity, sipping on something bitter and regurgitating it into audible upchuck. I judge them for their faults, their neglect of each other, and their mouths, and forget their difficulties when I stand in front of the mirror watching my face change, fighting my tendencies, and trying to ignore my own faults, the ugliness of frustration my own rusting patina on an aging piece of equipment. I don't like thinking of them like this and try to remember the deep orange light of the southwestern sky, mixing with the chipped paint of the swing set, watching our shadows growl and crawl across the desert floor like wandering Gila monsters, sure that when we grew long in the tooth, we would do better than our imprisoned fathers before us. Children hanging in the struggle waiting for our parents to call us in when it gets too dark.
1: Window Washer at Logan Braced by a copper sunrise, the man cleaning the windows of the airport terminal splays himself against the glass with a ballet grace he learned on the job. His poise reassures the coach class paying customers the airlines themselves disdain. Behind him a parked airliner sports a tail whose horizontal stabilizer mocks his squeegee by sharing its simple geometry. Although although not as glamorous as piloting, window washing preserves a view of the world we need for the sake of sanity. The elegance of his effort flatters the garish sunup and suggests how the human figure might unfold in natural flight.
2: choice. When a tired eye circades the jacket neat line of a library shelf from left to right, and quite unexpectedly collides with chance to fixate on an unfamiliar spine, and a sapient hand pulls it from place, then the right choice is made.
0: I'm Agnes Wojta and I'm reading my poem, Lesson from a Dandelion. How easily the dandelions let go. The brush of a breeze sets the seeds free. They float away, leaving small scars on the green body where they once anchored. I want to learn not to cling to those who must leave when the time comes. To watch them drift towards growth The scar's a reminder how much I loved.
2: Black by Heather Cripps They handed out flags and ribbons on sticks at the back of the church hall, so when the music was playing, the kids could dance around and wave them while the adults sang. Ray took her little sister over to the plastic tub, and the lady standing behind it gave her a purple ribbon. Do you want one, dear? No, thanks, Ray said. Now her sister was dancing with the ribbon, she went to the back of the hall, to where they kept hot coffee and metal vats on tables, ready for the end of the service. Be thou my vision, sang the congregation, O Lord of my heart. Ray slipped under the tablecloth and under the table. The lights from the hall created a silhouette, shadows of ribbons and flags and children dancing on the cloth. The singing became muffled, but it was still there. Angie was waiting for her. Her parents gave her a lollipop every Sunday to shut her up during the service, and she was sucking it and it was making her lips purple. She was sitting with her head against the wall. Her curls sprayed there, legs tucked up to her chest so she could fit. Hey, she said, taking the lollipop out of her mouth. Nought be all else to me, save that thou art. Angie and Ray had been practising kissing. Thou be my best thought, by day or by night. Ready? Ready? Angie said, and tossed her long hair over her shoulder. Yes, Ray said. Angie leant over and pressed her lips against Ray's. They tasted like blackcurrant. They broke apart and then kissed again. They never kissed properly, like Ray had seen people on TV do it, with their tongues touching and their mouths moving. Maybe they would do that one day, when they were older. For now, this was it. When Ray's mother asked her last week how church was for her, Ray said, fuzzy, And her mother said, ah, and smiled like Ray had said the right answer. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Last one, Angie said. Angie leant over and gave her a hard kiss, one that lasted for a while and got harder and harder until it started to hurt. And Angie's face pressed closer and closer up to hers. And then with a small smacking noise only they could hear, she let go. Angie had her hand around Ray's wrist and she squeezed it tight. Ray wondered if she'd meant to. Let's go, Angie said, sticking the lolly back in her mouth and lifting the tablecloth up, the brightness of the lights making Ray have to close her eyes and blink to refocus. When she did, Angie had already gone, and the tablecloth had fallen again. Ray lay on her stomach and looked through the gap between the tablecloth and the floor, out at the church hall, but she couldn't see Angie in the crowd, so she stayed where she was until her mum came to find her for Sunday school. Pressing her hand up to her lips every so often, and kissing the lines on her palms, imagining black and lemon and lime and orange and cola. Heart of my own heart, whatever before still be my vision, or oh ruler, of all.
1: The clock, and the locomotive. The clock. I got a New Year's card from my sister Liz last year with a photo of an old clock on the cover. This clock had sat on the mantle of the house in Texas where we grew up. Our dad, she explained in the card, took the works out of a clock from our mother's mother and put them in the ornate case of one from his mother. As a teen, Liz watched him at work on the kitchen table as he married these pieces together. She could hear it chime from the master bedroom through the wall to her room. It was to her the heartbeat of the house. I don't remember the chime. I don't have an image of the clock in my head at all. The most I could get from her photo was a hazy suspicion but it might have been an object I'd seen a long time ago. Since it meant so much to her, I wanted to understand it better, so I turned my picture-framers eye on it. The white face of the dial was green with age. The hands had scraped concentric scars into the Roman numerals. The works made, at best, an imperfect marriage with the case The face set asymmetrically in its opening, more to the right than the left. The body of the works had to be a little smaller than the aperture, so Dad wedged it in somehow. Elaborate detailing covered the case, but it didn't keep its symmetry from the left side to the right. On the left, a leaf-studded gold vine ended with a curlicue just off the opening, but its partner vine on the right was thicker, with larger leaves, and the curlicue overlapped the edging around the hole. These irregularities meant a hand different from that of the original decorator had restored some damaged details. A wooden molding clung to the front, apparently to keep the works from falling out. The walnut molding, straight and simple, seemed a contradiction to the original ornate design. I knew where it came from, the racks of the picture frame shop my parents operated and where I worked when I was in high school. I've made frames with that molding for shops in three different states. The joints in the molding seemed to make an octagon, but only three lengths of the eight were evident in the photograph they didn't fit with precision. If he'd wanted, dad could have fit them as precisely as anyone would want. But this was a personal project. He once told me, what you make for the customer is one thing. What you make for yourself is another. What I recognized in the clock was not the clock itself nor its significance to our family history. I saw the unmistakable hand of my dad holding the red sable brush he used to restore the leafy details on the case, one of many brushes he taught me to use. Those details were as good as a signature. He might as well have signed it mink at the bottom. The Locomotive One Christmas morning in the early 1960s, I found my name on a big box under the tree. Inside was a toy train set. But before I reach too deeply into the story of the train, you should know about my room as a kid so you can understand how the train fit into it. The Victorian house on East 30th Street in Bryan, Texas, had a steep, narrow staircase with a landing at the top. Off the landing was the largest room in the house. For years it was my big sister Patty's room with her son Tom until they met a man called Pete and my parents remodeled the room for me. The walls slanted. In the center was a king-sized bed an extension on the right led to the balcony. Across from the bed was another, longer extension directly above the master bedroom on the ground floor. In this alcove, Dad set up a couple of sawhorses and laid a four by eight sheet of plywood across them. He tacked the O gauge tracks onto the board. Around them, Dad built a landscape, a train station, houses, Trees, a river, roads, and a water tower. Little hand-painted people stood around. He didn't, as many modelers did, cut a tunnel through a papier-mâché mountain, probably because we lived in Brazos County and our landscape had no mountains. Doing all this, Dad had a fine old time. It was his toy in my room. I doubt he had a train set when he was a kid. Many men may want sons not so much to relive, but to construct new childhoods for themselves, ones they wanted but didn't have. Playing with it was a father-son activity, but after a while, Dad moved on to other endeavors, ceramics, photography, cartooning, etc., I ran the train around the track for a couple of weeks. What could I have done with it except drive it in the same circle over and over? Okay, it had switches, but even so, the possibilities had limits. I did stage a battle or two on the terrain with my green plastic soldiers in a fight to the death with my rubber Tyrannosaurus Rex, but soon I became too old for that stuff. For years, the train lay out took up room in the alcove. Eventually, the tracks, the locomotive, the tender, boxcars, and caboose returned to their box. The freed floor space became a laboratory for my adolescent inventions and experiments. Only a few activities were open to me in the evenings of my early teen years. I could have either sprawled in a chair in the living room with mother and dad and Liz and gazed at gun smoke on TV. Or I could have endured the skirmishes of my parents' imperfect marriage, their battles over which of them their children loved the most. Or I could climb the stairs to my room and build my erector-set robots, my flexible wing gliders, and my paper copter spinners. In time I grew up, escaped Texas for California, made picture frames during the week, and carved writhing shapes into wood. I settled at last in Seattle. My sister moved to Tennessee, married a historian named Ed, built her own career as an educator, and had a son. I itched, to visit my sister. Tennessee was as deep into the south as I could allow myself to go, so I traveled to Tennessee. I was welcomed, and once I was, Ed wanted to show me something. He brought out the old train set from my room, complete with tracks. Each Christmas, they set it up and ran it around the tree. Ed put the engine in my hand. The locomotive was about six inches long and bright red. I didn't feel any surge of recognition or connection. I didn't want to feel any of that. Instead, it stirred up a distant, half-formed, subterranean replay of all the levels of emotional warfare my parents fought on the battlefields of the house in Texas. I turned the locomotive over in my hands and studied its details. Had I looked at it this closely when it was in my room? Probably not. It was a refugee from the past, like me, and I strove to disappear from the past as quickly and as thoroughly as I could. Yes, I did get out of Texas, but my life had switches. I didn't get away as cleanly or as soon as I'd hoped. Remnants clung to me, surged up without warning, struck me in the face, and sucked me down into grief, pain, and rage. The little red engine in my hands in my sister's house in Murfreesboro pulled me back into the Texas I'd tried so hard for so many years to live as if it never existed. An impulse took me to carry the locomotive to the back of my sister's house and throw it with all my strength over the fence into the wilderness beyond. But I was by this time not as given to impulse as I had been in my past. Liz and her people didn't deserve that kind of outburst. They did deserve some respect for their lives, and this object was now a part of theirs, and not mine. Still, some hint of my true reaction must have shown on my face. I'm sure my poor brother-in-law expected to conjure a treasured childhood memory. He might have inferred from the smart, sane example of his wife that all the Minkerts must be just like she is. But we're not. Not all of us. Many thanks to Liz Minkert Johnson and Ed Johnson for their help in making this story as accurate as possible.